You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Um, we are in a series in 1 Samuel. We're looking at the life of King David. And last week, James Garcia did such a great job week one of the life of David and his anointing, and God looks at the heart. God judges people from within. He sees um, omnisciently into the heart of human beings, and we don't. And, um, and so it was a great, great job. James did such a great job last week. And today we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 17 and the famous story of David and Goliath. We're not going to be able to take questions today because uh, there's a lot here to get through. Uh, a whole chapter with how many verses? Let's see. Uh, 58. But take heart, we will not be unpacking one verse at a time. Um, so we won't be doing questions today, but if you can put the question uh, QR code up there, Chris, um, we do want to receive questions at any time, and we can turn those questions into a podcast or other forms. So if you don't have that QR code, scan it and save it on your phone, and you can always ask questions. We'd love to engage with any questions you have. Uh, real quick reminder, you'll hear, hear again at the end of the service, I'm sure, but reminder, family meeting tonight. Uh, if you're a Vine member, we ask that you make that a priority. We're going to discuss some really important things. Um, and if you can't make it, all of us you know, might not be able to make it for some reason, um, please listen to the recording that we will publish. Um, these family meetings are vital to kind of how we do church. And um, so please make that a priority if, if you can. Uh, more, me- more info about family meeting tonight at the end of the service. All right, 1 Samuel 17. If you have a Bible, turn there. It's, uh, it's after Deuteronomy, if you're new to your Bible. Honestly, Joshua, Judges, Ruth... If, if you're new to your Bible, don't be ashamed to look at the table of contents, okay? No one's going to judge you around here for that. Um, there's no shame in that. So let me just pray for us. Heavenly Father, would you glorify yourself and satisfy your people this morning through the preaching of your word? Would you have grace to us as we hear? Would you hover over your word right now in this moment by your spirit in ways that Um, glorify you and bring deep joy to us. We know that's your desire. May you help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think it might not be hard to see or be convinced that the David and Goliath story, the account, the historical account, is probably the most famous account in all the scriptures, right? I mean, we hear it every single year, right around this time, when people are watching basketball, March Madness, right? And the 16 seed is playing the one seed. <clears throat> and what is it? It's a David and Goliath story. Everybody knows what that means. It's a cultural cliche. And I think it's because for some reason as human beings, we love an underdog story, right? I mean, how many movies can you think of? Let's just, we're, we're a small group here. Let's just try this out. Can anybody shout out an under, underdog story movie? Give me one. Hoosiers. Hoosiers. Amen. Underdog. What? Underdog. 
Underdog. I heard of hockey something? Rocky. Rudy. 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 Miracle on Ice, right? The 1980 gold medal U.S. hockey team, right? What else? Anybody else? Braveheart. Braveheart, yep. Did anybody say Frodo, Lord of the Rings? Did somebody ever say that? Yeah, come on. I mean, we could go on and on, right? The stories are legion, the underdog story. Everybody loves the underdog story. But what does that tell us about human nature? What does that tell us about human nature when this is ubiquitous? It's everywhere in our culture and in our movies and the stories we love. Maybe this tells us about our deepest needs as human beings. That all humans resonate with, whether they know it or not. And maybe God might have something to say to us in light of these normative human experiences. Maybe it's that deep down we all feel weak. Deep down we all feel like an underdog in some sense. Like everybody knows what it feels like to have the odds stacked against you. Everybody knows what it feels like to maybe feel like evil is threatening to overcome. Everybody can probably relate to the feeling of, I need someone to rescue me right now. I think that's why the story of David and Goliath is so famous. So we're going to see today why this story is so famous as it speaks to the deep human felt needs, our true needs. But more than anything this morning, I I want you to walk out of here with this. The story of David and Goliath is not ultimately about David or King Saul or Goliath. The story is ultimately about the faithfulness, power, fame, and spirit of God. It's not ultimately about David or Saul or Goliath. The story this morning, this historical account is ultimately about the faithfulness, power, fame, and spirit of God. So let's open our Bibles and and, and take a look at this. 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the back tables that you can keep if you don't have one. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Succah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Succah and um, Isaiah, sorry, Ezekah, in Ephrath Damin. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. So Saul was the king. He was running the show, okay? But we learned last week that David was anointed the new king. But everything hadn't transpired to have David ruling and reigning yet, okay? He's still just a young boy, but Samuel, the prophet, came and anointed him, meaning that day's coming. That day's coming. He will be the king. He is the king. But that's not quite yet happening here. Verse 3, and the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. So typical army tactics, you got to defend the higher ground, right? Verse 4, and there came out from the camp 
Wait, I'm going to stop right there. Um, so for the sake of this story, I'm just going to summarize a lot of this. And so you can kind of let your eyes kind of glance over the text as you go. But let me just summarize verses 4 through 7. Goliath the giant comes out. And he comes and he talks. Just, he just talks crazy to God's people. He threatens them. He talks big. He talks trash. Look at verse 8. That's verses 4 through 7. Verse 8 is this. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are not you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Verse 10. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So what do we have so far? We've got threats. And what's the emotional response? Verse 11, fear. We've got God's enemy the enemy of God's people and the enemy of God calling out, speaking crazy, threatening, and what do God's people do? Including the guy who's supposed to be king, fear. All right? But what is, what is Goliath doing? What's his tactic that he's saying? Well, what he's asking for is a representative battle, right? A representative battle. What does that mean? One man will represent the Philistines. One man will represent God's people, the Israelites. And they'll engage in battle for the sake of the teams. Winner takes all. Now that sounds kind of interesting, right? As we go this morning, I want you to put yourself imaginatively into this text. This is really hard with this story that you probably know very well. But I want you to try for that. It'll make your Bible come alive. Like if you, can you imagine yourself there? If you were there watching the story up to this point, what do you think you would have been thinking? If you're hearing this account for the first time as an ancient Israelite, what do you think you would have been thinking at this point in the story? You'd probably be thinking, who do we have that stacks up to Goliath, right? Do we have a Michael Jordan of hand-to-hand combat? Do we have a Michael Jordan of sword fighting? Because this guy is massive. He's a giant. Most scholars would say probably nine foot tall or so. Like, what about Saul? We learned that Saul, earlier in 1 Samuel, was a tall guy. He's really tall. He's the king. He, he should be our representative, right? He's our protector. He looks the part. He's the king. And those would all be good thoughts if you were there at that time or hearing this told for the first time. Well, let's see what happens. And I want you to keep imagining with me how you would feel if you were in the text. Now, verses 12 through 18, what happens? Verses 12 through 18. Well, the account turns away from Goliath and now turns towards David. And we learn some things about David. David is the youngest of his brothers, And in this time in history, birth order was a really big deal. Birth order is a really big deal. So what does that mean? That means that David doesn't get to go fight. 
He's probably too young. But his dad wants him to be a runner. David gets to be the runner. And so he goes with food and drink to his brothers on the battlefield who are fighting for Israel. And his job is to go and just back to, from his father's house to them in the battle every day bringing them stuff. And when he's not a runner, what is he? He's a shepherd. David is a shepherd. Not a glamorous job in the ancient world. He's lowest on the totem pole in his family. Birth order was a big deal. So the older brothers have to be brave and valiant, and he does kind of the menial tasks. That's verses 12 through 18. Now, verses 19 through 23. One of these days, the Bible says that David is doing his daily chore of being the runner. And he sees everybody line up for battle, and he's kind of mingling with people. And he happens to hear, as they're all standing around, Goliath come out and do his typical ranting and raving and threatening God's people. And David hears these words himself for the first time. Goliath had been doing this day after day, and, and God's people don't know what to do. Saul doesn't know what to do. They're scared. So then verses 24 through 27 basically says this. David sees that the men of his, of his people, his brothers and his extended family, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, he sees that they're really afraid, and they admit it. They admit that they're afraid. Like Goliath, God's enemy, look at him. He's intimidating. And, and the challenge to God's people literally looms very, very large. But he also hears that Saul's going to give an amazing reward to whoever, to whoever would slay the giant and win the battle for God's people. And look at what David says. Look at it in your Bible. The second half of verse 26. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Translation, who is this enemy of God's people? Who is this person that doesn't know our God? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So David... When he says this, it's a contrast to what we've seen so far, right? What's the contrast? Well, he doesn't seem phased by Goliath, does he? Like, why would David have the audacity to say this? And there's a hint at the end of verse 26. Look at the end of verse 26. Defy the armies of the living God. So whose army is it? is it? Is it Saul's army? Is it Israel's army? Is it David's army? No, it's the armies of the living God. Like David's saying, guys, remember, our God is not dead. He's alive. It's his army. So what is he doing here? He's reminding scared fearful people of their identity. He calls them to remember who they are, and hear this, whose they are. He calls them to remember who they are and whose they are. Well, we keep going in verses 28 through 30. His older brothers don't like this. 
His older brothers are like, David, you're the, you're the runt of the family. You need to shut up. Like, who are you to come out here and talk to us like this? Well, David doesn't back, he doesn't back down, and he, and, he, and he keeps walking around the, the line of, of the army or the camp, and he keeps saying the same things. And, and finally, word gets back to King Saul that there's somebody walking around the camp with confidence that we should have courage and not be afraid of this giant. So what does Saul do? He sends for David. And let's look at verse 32, and we'll pick up there. And David said to Saul, and David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him, Goliath. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And David, and Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he's been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies, here it is again, of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and let the Lord be with you. So what's David doing here? He's remembering the faithfulness of the Lord in his past to give him confidence to face God's enemies in the future. You see that? Let me say that again. Did you see it in the text? He remembers the faithfulness of the Lord in his past to give him confidence to face God's enemies in the future. Look at verse 37. Who delivered him out of the mouth of the lion or the bear? It says the Lord, right? Look at it, verse 37. And David said, the Lord who delivered, past tense, see the past tense? Who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, what's coming next? Future tense, will deliver. So I'm looking back, remembering for the sake of faith in the future. You see that? See the importance of how the past tense and future tense work together in the scriptures? But, but what else is David doing here? Who, who gets the credit? Is David flexing here for Saul? Is David here saying, look, I have a black belt in giant slaying. I've been training like Rocky in Russia. I've logged the hours. Protein shakes and slingshots are all I know. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that, does he? He said, the Lord delivered me. He's looking back, seeing what God did, and believing God for the future. This is Christianity 101, by the way. He's focused on the power of God, not on himself. 
Well, verses 38 through 40, Saul says, all right, he's convinced. It's like, let's give it a shot. So he tries to give him his, arm, his, his, his armor and his sword, and David's like, I can't use this stuff. He doesn't think it's wise. He wants to use the weapons that he's used to. So out he goes. Look at verse 41. Let's pick it up here. <clears throat> and the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with a shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. So did you catch it again? Like, when it comes to David and his confidence, what's the emphasis? Look at verse 45 again. You come to me with sword and spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied. This day the Lord will deliver me into, into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. What's the repetition here? The Lord, right? He says it four times. In the name of the Lord, the Lord will deliver. The Lord saves. The battle is the Lord's. So David's not thinking about all the slingshot training under his belt. He's not thinking about the size of Goliath. He's not thinking about the odds stacked against him. All that is worthless in light of the one thing, the presence of God and the promises of God, the Lord. See, this account is way more about God than it is about David. David shows us where his focus is. Like, this story is way more about the faithfulness, power, fame, and spirits of God, the God of Israel, incarnate in Jesus Christ, than it is about David, Saul, or Goliath. I want you to see one other really important aspect to this section of the account. What is the reason why David says that God is going to grant the victory? Did you catch it? Why? Like, what is God's motivation for granting the victory to David? Now, there's probably a lot you could come up with, but what does the text say? Look at verse, verse 46, 46 again. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. Why? 
What does it say? Look at it. That all the earth may know. So not just the Philistines, not just the nation of Israel, the whole earth, right? That there's a God in Israel may know. May know what? That there's a God in Israel, the true God. Trust him. Hear him with ears to hear. Follow him. Be on his team. See, you don't have to be on the defeated team, the team that experiences the just wrath of God poured out. You can know. And what else does it say? How far should this knowledge spread? What does it say? It says all the earth. See, see, even here, there's a missionary impulse of the kingdom of God. All the earth will know. All the earth will know. Why does, why does God give the victory? So that he can be made famous in all the earth. Right? God's desire is to make his name famous in every square inch of this world. So this account is way less about David and Saul and Goliath. It's about God being made famous. His glory covering the earth as the waters covers the sea. It's about learning that the battle is the Lord's. That the Lord is the strong one. The Lord is the powerful one. The Lord is the one who grants the victory. He is the one who empowers by his spirit. He is the one who can be trusted. He's the one who makes, makes a way. The story is way more about the faithfulness, power, fame, and spirit of Yahweh, the God of Israel, incarnate in Jesus Christ, than it is about David or Saul or Goliath. Let's see how this wraps up. Verse 48. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. <clears throat> And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. So that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tents. So remember how I asked you to imaginatively hearing this for the first time? Like, what do you think you would learn about God? What do you think you would learn about yourself? You'd probably learn a lot, right? There's a lot we could say. Let me give you three. This isn't exhaustive, but let me give you three suggestions. What would you learn about God or what would you learn about yourself from this account? I think the first thing you would learn is that we should pay attention. Like, if I'm an ancient Israelite hearing this for the first time, I'm thinking, I should probably pay attention to the leaders that are filled with God's Spirit. To the leaders that are filled with God's Spirit. Now, we got to go a little beyond chapter 17 for this, and actually before, we have to look back to chapter 16. And what do we learn about David? Look back at chapter 16, verse 13. 
Just flip one page probably. This is when David's anointed the king. Verse 13 says, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, David, in the midst of his brothers. And here it is. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. That's a really important piece of information. It's no surprise that the account of David and Goliath follows chapter 16. You hear that? The victory of David is not David's. He doesn't get the credit. God gets the credit. It's the spirit of God in David that enables the victory. So God gets the credit, but also, I think if I was reading it for the first time, I would be thinking, hey, we should listen when spirit-filled leaders call us to trust on the living God. Like, remember David was walking around the camp and saying, hey, the Lord is on our side. This is the living God. What do we have to be afraid of? And people are like, nah, we're, we're good, David. Why don't you just step aside? Why don't you quiet down there, little buddy? Brothers wouldn't listen. But a first reader in us learns that we should pay attention to what the Spirit of God is doing. Chapter 16, verse 13 told us that the Spirit of God was all over David. Pay attention to where the Spirit of God is. So first, you probably learn, we should learn, that we should pay attention to, to the leaders that are filled with God's Spirit. Now, here's a sidebar you can write down and we'll answer later. How do you know how do you look and tell if a leader is filled with the Spirit of God? Great question. We're not going to get into that, but let's get into that later if you want. So that's what the first thing. What about the second thing that I would suggest? The second one might be this. The battle is the Lord's. It's not ours. And that's just basically what, exactly what, what David says. The battle's ultimately not about our effort, power, tactics. It's about God and his power, effort, and tactics. Like God is empowering the representative that God's, God's people need. You see that? God is empowering the representative that God's people need. When God's representative is filled with the Spirit and trusted by God's people, victory will be ours because the battle is his God will fight in the way that he sees fit. Trust in the one he's empowered. It's his battle. He will provide the representative for you. You simply enjoy the victory by watching and believing. Like, did the ancient Israelites contribute much here? Nope. They just sat back and they were like, okay, seems like David has God's spirit all over him. We'll trust that God has a plan through this guy. Number two, the battle's the Lord's, not ours. And then number three, God desires to make his name famous. He desires to tell the story. That's what it said, right? That all the world may know that there is a God in Israel. Speak the victory. May the victory of God be told to every square inch of creation. That's verse 46. God desires to make his name famous. So if you were listening to this for the first time, those would be great lessons for you, right? Now here's where we jump to 2023. Because we're a little different from them, right? 
We're different. How? We live on the other side of the cross and the empty tomb. And Jesus has told us, like James reminded us last week, John 5, 39, Luke 24, we see that Jesus has said that the whole Old Testament is ultimately about him. Ultimately, it's about him. Ultimately, it points to him. So the question for us today by way of application might be, how do these three points that I just said ultimately show us Jesus? How does David and the story of David and Goliath ultimately point to Jesus? That Jesus is the truer and better David. Well, who ultimately is the spirit-filled leader who can be trusted? We're going to learn tragically as we go these next few weeks that it's not David. It's not David. If you were hearing this for the first time, you might be thinking, all right, maybe, the Messiah, maybe this is the Messiah. We find out it's not. David's going to utterly fail in horrible ways. Ultimately, God's people need a perfect king that, with his spirit all over him. What do we learn about Jesus? You'll need to turn there. I'm just going to read it. Look on the screen. Matthew 3. And when Jesus, had, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus is the ultimate Spirit-filled leader. Luke 4. And he came to Nazareth when he had been brought, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. He's not just doing this randomly. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. There it is. Because he has anointed. That word anointed should ring some bells. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolls up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he had the audacity to say this, today this scripture has been filled in your hearing. Spirit of the Lord on me, anointed me. I'm the guy. I'm the truer and better David. Jesus is the ultimate leader who is filled with the Spirit of God and anointed of God. Trust him. Second, the battle is the Lord's, not yours. Consider Colossians about the battle and Jesus. This text doesn't say a lot about us. It says a lot about Jesus. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. See, God fought, that's what this says right here, God fought for us. God fought the ultimate enemy. What's that? Sin and death. Jesus nailed to a cross, and rising from the dead, that was his way of fighting for us. 
right? Jesus is the ultimate David who fought God's enemy for us in our place. We're the scared and needy Israelites hovering off in the, in the bushes when Goliath spews forth his threats, right? Jesus is the truer and better David. He's our representative in the winner-take-all battle. If Jesus wins, and he did, and we are in him, like the Bible says, the win of the king is the win for everyone on his team. See Romans 5 for more on that. And why the victory? God desires to make his name famous. What did Jesus say about spreading the victory to all the ends of the earth like we heard from the mouth of David? Jesus says the same thing after the victory that he won at the cross and empty tomb. Mark 15, 16. And he said to them, go into, same phrase, all the world. That all the world will know there's a God in Israel. Same phrase here. Go into all the world, he says to his disciples, recipients of the victory. And proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. All the world. Whole creation. Jesus is the ultimate David. So this morning, I just want you to be reminded and inspired to remember the gospel, right? Jesus is our champion, right? Jesus is our champion who is filled with the Spirit of God. He is the Lord himself who fights for us, and he will make his name known to all the world. This story is about the faithfulness, power, fame, and spirit of God that enables the victory. So action point, put your trust in Jesus, not in yourself. Put your trust in Jesus, not in yourself. God has provided the champion that you need. So we trust him at every turn, not yourself. And here's the deal. Eventually, in him, all victories will be won. It's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the reminder that the battle is yours, that we can trust you as the spirit-filled anointed one, the spirit-filled anointed king, that you desire to make your name famous and you will. God, we pray that we would see this account and may the emphasis be for all of us, just like it was for David, the Lord the Lord, the Lord. May you loom large in our vision, much larger than any giants, than any challenges, Lord. Lord, may the the victory that you won over sin, death, Satan, condemnation, empower us to live lives of faith today, knowing that the battle is yours. We ask for your help by the power of your word and your spirit to do this. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.